You are listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. To imitate God, to be like God. And we talked about how uh, the, the greatest expression of our connection with Him, our knowledge of Him, our commitment to Him, our devotion to Him, is when we mimic Him. When we learn enough about Him that we are able to put that in the shoelaces, to live that way. And one of the greatest ways we can mimic God, if you will, is in the act of giving. Giving is an outstanding attribute of God. In fact, if you remove giving, you actually remove any relationship we would have with the Lord, because that relationship comes, obviously, through giving. So we're going to finish today what we started. Um, Here's the plan, or was the plan. Biblical doctrine of tithing, we did that last week. Old Testament example of free will giving. Uh, The New Testament example of free will giving is where we'll start this week, and then we'll end by looking at uh, what I've titled the biblical doctrine, or the teaching, if you will, from the New Testament of free will giving. We understand from last week that tithing is not the the rule for the New Testament church to give. We understand that Israel was a theocracy, and God had imposed upon them a revenue system where taxation was gathered, and that taxation was used for the most part um, for the Levites because they were not given any land, and their total occupation was to serve God and to serve uh, the people. And then we looked at a supreme example of free will giving. The Lord needed a contribution, and he went to Moses, expressed that need. Moses went to the people, expressed that need, and... uh, The only command really given during the episode was Moses saying, stop giving. And he said, stop giving because the support was so overwhelming, they had enough. King James Bible says they had, they had, the stuff was great. They had great stuff. So that was the only command is just to stop giving. Now, we want to turn our attention this morning to looking at a similar example uh, but this comes from the New Testament, and unlike the, the uh, episode with Moses, we're going to understand what's behind their giving. Paul is going to talk to us a little bit about what's in the mind, for instance, of a Macedonian Christian as he is giving. So turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and we're going to start off right here at verse 1. And as you turn, just let me say a couple of reasons for giving, obvious, giving to the church. Uh, the, 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 the one reason is because we support the, the ministers, those people who are on staff, who commit full-time service to the Lord. We give to support their livelihood. Another reason we give to the church is so that in the church or outside of the church, needs can be met in a very organized way. So when we get to 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we're going to see a great example of how uh, the Christians gave in support of other Christians. So the context here is Paul had initially started this gathering of, of money from the churches. Actually, he started with the Corinthian church so that he might get them to carry on, carry out the plan that they started. He's going to use the Macedonian churches in the beginning as an example of, uh, of how even they were spawned on by the giving of, of the Corinthians. So the context then is Paul is gathering money for the Christians, the poor Christians and the church in Jerusalem. So why were they poor, right? Why the need for all this money uh, to go to Jerusalem. Well, the pre- a precedence had been established in the Old Testament where the Israelites had to come back to Jerusalem for certain feasts. One of those was the Feast of Pentecost. The Feast of Pentecost this particular year was different than it was the birth of the church. Now, because it was a, uh, 
a religious observance that God mandated, all of these people, all of the Jews came from many parts of the world. And I'm going to read a couple of verses, uh, Acts 2, 5, and then uh, 9 through 11, just to give you an idea of what was happening. Now, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya, around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, those non-Jews who had believed, Cretans and Arabs. So you have a huge number of people coming in, and guess what? The Lord saved many of them. These people were tenants living perhaps with family, living in lodges, but now they're saved. And many of them didn't go back. And, and this is a lot of people. For instance, in the second chapter of Acts, we're told that the Lord added 3,000 to the church. Can you imagine us having 3,000 people added to Genesis Community Church in a moment, right? So you had 3,000, and then you move forward into the fourth chapter, and it says 5,000 men were added to the church. So this is a huge number, and it created a great economic strain because some of these people were ousted out of the lodges. They were definitely pushed out by the non-believing Jews. They were basically left with trying to live together, believers helping out believers, and trying to find jobs. So you can imagine how much poverty immediately entered the church. And so Paul took up the mantle to get a collection. And there were multiple collections taken to the church at Jerusalem. Um, but here, Paul, he's taken up that mantle to get collection going so that they might help um, the believers in Jerusalem. Now, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians here, chapters 8 and 9, really are the core of his message regarding giving. So the first point we want to make is uh, just looking at the grace of God in giving. In, in this particular passage, verses 1 through 5, and we'll, we'll read through it in a second, but in this particular passage, there are two things simultaneously happening that's very important. The first is the giving of grace by God. And the second is the, the marvel, the grace of the Macedonians, the giving of the believers and how they freely gave. So the Apostle Paul first talks about how God, how the grace of God was given to the Macedonians. So the Macedonians are the church at Philippi. That was the first European church. And then you have the uh, church at Thessalon Thessalonica, second church, and then the Bereans. And you know about the Bereans, the apostle said about them that they were noble because they searched the scriptures daily. So these are three of the churches to whom Paul is writing. The grace of God in giving. So the apostle says, now brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. Notice, Paul describes this act of giving. He, essentially, he says, let me tell you what God has done working in the church of Macedonia. He speaks of the grace of God. The grace of God has nothing at this point to do with the gift. The grace of God has to do with the disposition. He's talking about God working in the hearts of the Macedonians to bring them to give. That's the grace of God. Now, that's working simultaneously with the believers themselves following that unctioning. And there's much that can be said about the work of God, the Holy Spirit working in the hearts and bringing us to do consistently the will of God. Much. Because, frankly, not much is accomplished if the Holy Spirit isn't guiding it. Not much is accomplished that pleases God. So... These believers were sensitive to that, and, and they gave. Now, their generosity is seen in the fact that they gave. But listen, this is something to really, really marvel about. I want to read it now, and I want you to just listen to the words that Paul uses to describe the Macedonian gi givers. 
that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. There are seven descriptions that Paul gives here, and I'll run through them quickly, and then we're going to talk about them. The first is, they gave in spite of tribulation. They gave in spite of poverty. They gave joyously, they gave richly, they gave sacrificially, they gave voluntarily, and they gave worshipfully. That's how they gave. First, they gave in spite of tribulation. A tribulation is a nice word, and I purposely chose that instead of affliction. They both can be translated from the same Greek word. But, I, you know, I could say words like, like they were on hard times, they had misfortune, um, they, they just uh, were, were stressed out. But tribulation is a word that more connects with God than any of those other words. So when Paul is talking about this tribulation, it's not in the absence of God. What he's talking about is this affliction, this tribulation that is a trial. The word that he uses to describe the affliction is uh, dokimehi. And dokimehi is a word that is, is uh, often translated testing. And testing always is related to God. Like when he tested Abraham to, to kill his son. Testing. God takes us through some, some pretty critical testing from time to time. But the point is, the tribulation that the Thessalonians were suffering were not simply hard times. They were purposeful, sanctioned by God, if you will. James uses the word in, this, in, in these verses. Consider it all joy. Remember that verse? Consider it all joy. You can probably quote it, right? Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing, dokimehi, the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So the severity of their affliction is seen in that God is, is, is testing them. And it's quite a test. Affliction, for instance, comes from the word thelipsis. And the verb form of this word is often used to describe pressing grapes in the, in the, in the wine press. And it has to do with a pressing or a crushing. It's kind of like when I say or when you say, you know, man, I'm under so much pressure. You know, when you say that, you're not, you're not saying someone's crushing me. That might be the case, but... It's that you're, you're tormented. I mean, you, you're suffering anguish, sometimes even to the po point of despair. And all of that comes from God. It's a test. And so these believers were under such a test, but you know what? It didn't, it didn't keep them from giving unto the Lord. And it didn't keep them from giving joyously, as we'll see in a second. But Paul told the Thessalonians when he came in, brought the gospel, he said, you receive the word of God amid much tribulation. And then uh, I love this verse in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, or these verses. Listen to how he talks about affliction or tribulation. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith so that no one would, would be disturbed by these afflictions, these tribulations. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, and so it has come to pass, just as you know. So the Apostle Paul, he warned them. You know the old... Uh, word about Christianity and the faith is that if you're saved, you'll have no more problems. Everything will be just roses. We know better than that. 
And we know better than that because God wouldn't have it that way. There's no way to develop maturity without affliction. It's just impossible. So that's why the Lord does that. I would have to think that the more mature person I've ever, ever read about are either Job or Paul. Just because of all the afflictions. I mean, even with Paul, the, the Lord says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. So it isn't uncommon that we're going to face tribulations just like these uh, uh, Macedonian Christians, various kinds of tribulations, but that didn't keep them from giving. That's what's remarkable. In spite of the, the uh, tribulations they gave, but that's not all. He says also they gave in spite of poverty. And not just poverty, deep poverty. These folks, if you had the, the, uh, the poverty line like we have today, they would probably be right at it, right way below it, because they had nothing. They were fairly destitute, yet the Apostle Paul says they gave abundantly out of their impoverished lives, they also gave joyously. Now, that's the one that really gets me, right? You, you don't expect people who are going through trouble, even to the point of despair from time to time, who are poor, to have the mindset that they're going to give joyously to the Lord. You know, where's the joy come from, right? But it's a real joy. And it's a joy that comes from God. Peter describes the joy as an inexpressible and glorious joy. That's, that's really uh, one of the, the most precious gifts that God has given us, is that, that, that ability to have pleasure, to have that joy within, even when everything else is going crazy around us, we have this joy. And they certainly demonstrated that, being poor and then giving out of that joy. David, remember David's sin, confessed his sin in, in the 20, 50, 51st Psalm? And you remember what he asked for? David said to the Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation, God's salvation. It is something to know that the Lord has an unending stream of joy for all of us. And I'm going to tell you, that's another sermon, but sometimes we get caught up in trying to fabricate that joy because we don't always see our situation as being sanctioned by God. And we look for help in places we shouldn't look for help. But that's another story. So not only do they give out, out of tribulation, gave out of poverty, gave joyously, but they gave abundantly. And abundantly doesn't simply describe the amount. Abundantly also looks at, as we're going to see later, it looks at the disposition. It looks at the heart. It looks at where this giving originated. And Paul says, in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Seems like a contradiction, right? That they could give that way, but they did. They gave joyously, and then they gave richly, overflowing. They gave sacrificially. You know the word sacrifice had to be there, right? Because there's, there's, that's the one word I think that, that is kind of woven through every aspect of our Christian lives. There's always a call, if you will, for sacrifice, avoiding the flesh, walking in the Spirit, making a sacrifice not to do what the flesh so often desires. But sacrificially, according to their ability and beyond their ability. That's sacrificially, according to their ability and beyond their ability. So first, he says that they gave according to their ability. Free will giving has no percentage. It has no upper limit. It has no lower limit. It really has no rule. The only requirement is that you give according to what you have. You know, there are people who teach that you know, you could give and trust God. Even if you have to give on credit, even if you don't have the money, just give. 
But that's not what is meant here. These people didn't give what they didn't have. What it means is that they gave way be beyond what the expectation was. They, they strained it. Paul didn't expect that they would give as much as they gave sacrificially. But they did, and then they gave voluntarily. And this is the free will of it all. They gave voluntarily. They gave of their own accord. Of their own accord, voluntarily. Now, Paul says that they gave, and they were urging, and they were begging. It's one thing that Paul would beg them, right? Please give. These believers are suffering. There are thousands of them in Jerusalem. They've sold everything, put it all together, uh, dished it out, and they still are suffering. We have needs. No. They're begging Paul. And you see the intensity of it where Paul says, not only did they beg, I mean, it would be one thing to say that they begged to give, right? And then it would be another to say they were urging us to give. But you see the intensity of their pleading when Paul says they, they begged with urging. They really wanted to give. And perhaps Paul, recognizing their state, encouraged them to keep what they had so that they might be able to support their families and themselves, but they, they begged. They really wanted to participate in this act of giving. But the most exceptional thing said here, I believe, is that they gave of their own accord. Their own accord. And the Greek word there has to do with self and choice. It's a self-choice, much like we saw last week with free will. So it's very clear that these folks gave because they wanted to. And you already know the Lord is working in a heart. You already know that. And so it isn't uncommon that something like this should happen because that's how the Lord does it. So they voluntarily gave. I want to read something just to show you that Paul absolutely did not pressure them at all. He gives them motivation, and he's using the Macedonians here for the Corinthians as an example of giving, but he didn't pressure them. Look at uh, chapter 8, and I didn't have time to really go through all of the verses, so I'm going to read this, and I think you'll get um, the sense of what's happening. First, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 7 through 12. For if the readiness is present... It is acceptable according to what a man has, not according to what he does not have. For this is not for the ease of... I'm sorry, I'm starting at the wrong place. Uh, here we go, verse 7. But as you abound in everything, in faith, and utterance, and knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. Calls it a gracious work. I'm not speaking this as a command. Now, why would he have to say that? Because we understand it's, it's, it's coming from their own volition. He says, basically, I'm not commanding you to do this. I'm not speaking as a command, but as proving through earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. You said you were going to give, so sincerely give. And this is a demonstration of your love, the Apostle Paul says. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. That's probably the most outstanding couple of verses in the eighth chapter, in the New Testament, in the Bible. We can take a series on that, couldn't we? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about it. He became rich. He didn't think equality with God, something to grasp, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant or man and being found in the likeness of man. So the Apostle Paul, he is simply pointing out some of the things that ought to motivate their giving. And I have my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage. 
who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. It was, it was all their choice. They wanted to do it. And now it's like, it's, like uh, it's time to collect. So we're going to come and collect, and we don't want to be surprised when we get there. But now finish doing it also, that just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may be also the completion of it by your ability. For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a man has and not according to what he does not have. So you get a sense there that Paul is appealing to their own volition. It's your choice what you do and how you do it. And then finally, finally, probably the greatest description is they gave worshipfully. Do you see it there? And this, not as we had expected, but they gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. That's outstanding. It's fascinating to think that here we are, you know, Paul, he, he planted these churches, and what a great joy to see that they have the right priority. The word first is... is uh, a word that has to do more with priority than with time. Protos, it's priority. In other words, it's not first, second, third, it's priority. It's what should take priority. And what Paul says is, we didn't expect it, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us. They recognized that their giving was not just people giving money, they recognized that their giving was unto the Lord. And listen, this is what separates all forms of giving, all humanitarian giving across the nation, across the world. This is what separates it when it's done unto the glory of God, when it comes out of a heart that is connected with the Lord. So to summarize this section real quickly from the example of the Macedonian Christians, Paul, he gave the, the Corinthians seven reasons that motivated the Macedonians, and these reasons should be a part of the Corinthians as well. You know, this is like, like the, the offering that Moses got, but as I said earlier, now you understand more of what's behind the scene. Moses simply said those whose hearts purposed them to give. Here, you understand all of what was happening and what was just flourishing up in the hearts of those Macedonians as they gave. So let's hit the last point. The last point is the biblical doctrine of free will giving. And this really is where the teaching is established because Paul says uh, some absolute stuff. He, he gives um, a couple of points that obviously can't be disputed because they're in the scriptures, but he begins with an axiom, and I'll, I'll talk through those in a second, but we're looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly, nor on the compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So we have an axiom to believe. We have an action to, uh, to take. We have approaches to avoid. And then we have an attitude to seek in that particular verse. So the axiom. The reason I said an axiom is an axiom is a self-evident truth. You just get it. No one has to explain it. So when he says, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. That, everybody knows that. You don't have to have come up in an agricultural setting to really recognize that that's a truth. That's just a truth that you're going to know, whether you're from the city or the country, right? But the Macedonians knew because they knew about sowing and reaping and all of that. Now, that's kind of the literal meaning, but the spiritual meaning behind it all, the figurative meaning, if you will, is, is giving. That's what Paul's doing, right? He's collecting money for the poor Christians in Jerusalem. He's not simply making a point of 
planting literal seeds, right? He's making the point that as you give, there's going to be some things happening with your giving. There's a difference in the definition, and this is where it's really important to capture these words, right? There's a difference in sparingly and bountifully when you apply it in a spiritual sense. Sparingly, well, they both have to do with quantity, but more importantly, quality. And quality reigns big here in this particular passage. Sparingly comes from a word that has to do with stingy. So the disposition is that one is giving from sort of a stingy attitude, right? It's the heart doesn't want to give. The heart is, uh, is kind of stingy about what it's doing. But then bountifully comes from the word eulogia. It means to bless, like eulogize, to, to bless someone, speak well of. So bountifully has to do with blessing. Well, here's the sense. The sense is this. When you give, you're giving with the mindset that your giving is a blessing on the one hand, and that you're going to receive a blessing from your giving. That's what's all caught up in the word. Giving bountifully, and you're going to reap bountifully. Hughes writes, the important lesson which Paul is urging upon the Corinthians at this point is that to give is to sow. What is given is not lost, but like the seed sown by the farmer, carried, contrary to all appearances, it possesses the potency of life and increase. At the same time, it is important to remember that as the whole context shows, the apostle is speaking of quality, not quantity, saying... not the quantity of giving. Linsky writes, he who sows on the basis of or on the principle of blessing, he shall reap on this basis and the principle. He who sows on the principle of blessing shall reap on the same principle. And he further says, the word means more than quantity, namely generosity from a deep, desire to help. So in other words, sow bountifully is to sow with the principle of blessing others and then receiving a blessing from God in return. This will certainly perhaps impact the quantity, but you get that it will impact the quality because your giving then has meaning. Whatever you decide to give, it has deep deep meaning. Now, the Lord doesn't need anything, right? We give because we have needs. I want to read you something just to show you how insignificant sacrifices alone is to the Lord. This is Micah 6, 6 through 8. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearlings, Yearling calves, does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and 10,000 10, rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious act, the fruit of my body for, my, for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly before or with your God? Same sentiment in Hosea 6.6, 6, for I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Now, these verses don't negate the obligation that the Israelites had to bring various sacrifices um, for which some of them were killed for not doing. So it, it doesn't eliminate that, but what it says is the sacrifices alone is not what's at stake. It's the disposition of the heart giving the sacrifices. I, I heard someone say to me, you know, we, we, we were talking about giving, and this guy said to me, that's a hard way to announce it, to introduce it, right? So 
the guy said, he said, listen, what if you need money? You needed a $20 bill. And I just rolled it up and just threw it at you. You would have $20. But how could you appreciate the heart from which it came? And so the Lord, it's very important, the heart that, that does the giving and how that heart is prone to connect with God and to be willing and ready to give, expecting to be um, blessed in return. Now, let's go back to the verse I gave you early on last week. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, for by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying. Give bountifully and you will reap bountifully. It's the, it's the heart, and if the heart is not there, that won't happen. Now, I said last week that the false teachers, they teach it erroneously. Really, the only good thing about how they treat this verse is they read it, right? And after they read it, they add stuff to make it erroneous. The, the erroneous part comes in the motivation. They want you to give, and without any, any sense of holiness and, and, uh, and uh, love for God, but just give, and then God will give to you, and he'll make you rich or whatever. No, the Lord gives so that you get and you give. You are a vessel. You're kind of a conduit. It comes through you and goes to others. And we'll read about that in a second, but you never hear that. You never hear that the Lord is giving to you so that you might be an extension of his arm and you're giving uh, to others. James talks a little bit about um, just giving for the, or maybe asking the, the Lord for wrong reasons. I think it somewhat relates, but here's what James says, James 4 two and three. You do not have because you do not ask. So then like the Lord Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you, right? But here's what he says further. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. And that's what behind the erroneous view of giving so that you might spend it on your pleasures. The Lord has given the promise that when you, when you bless him by blessing his people, when you give in support of the kingdom of God, the Lord will return blessing upon blessing. And please don't think I am anywhere near this, sore atti- this, this uh, erroneous teaching of the false teachers. We don't even like to say things like that, right? We don't even think that that's, a, that's a, a neat motivation or a spiritual motivation, right? You would think, like, you know, I want to give because the Lord has gave and I'm a Christian. And, but listen, the Lord knows us, and he knows what motivates us. Now, I would like to think that at some point I'll be mature enough just to let it go, just to be able to give because I love him and I know him. But... For right now, I understand that as I give, the Lord will bless so I can give more, and he is connected to all of that. Kaufman writes, the view that this is not a very exalted motive for giving should not be accepted. Giving as an exhibition of trust in God's promise to bless the giver is as exalted as any motive taught in the word of God. And I fully agree because you're connecting to God's promise, but you're connecting it, connecting with it in the right way. So now the question then is, how do you get all of that, right? How do you get to that place where the Macedonians are and they're able to give freely and to give that way? Well, the first thing, and you all know this, right? The first thing is you must be free of known sin, right? You must be free of known sin. In other words, if you have known sin that hasn't been confessed, the Lord doesn't accept. That's obvious. But I want to read a verse 
where the Lord talks about this in Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, he says, therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. He says, reconciliation comes first. Get it right and then come and present your offering before the Lord. Now, another important uh, consideration is right here in our passage in verse 7. And these um, are, let's call them actions to take. Each one must do just as he has purpose in his heart, not grudgingly, nor under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. This verse has two actions to take. It has two approaches to avoid, grudgingly compulsion. It has one attribute to seek, and that's cheerfulness when you give. So if you take the two actions to avoid, the two approaches, I'm sorry, the two actions to take, the two approaches to avoid, and the attribute to seek, That'll take you a long way in ensuring that your giving is right where it needs to be, and it could be a model like the, the uh, Macedonian Christians giving is a model. So, actions to take. The first thing is give. You, you, giving to us should be like breathing, right? Because we're connected to God, and we know that one of his attributes, especially as it relates to us, is giving. And so giving for a believer should be natural. Secondly, purpose in your heart. Purpose. What that word means is it's, it's predetermined. You, you have premeditated over what you're going to give, and it's, it's the opposite of, of spur of the moment or spontaneous. This is thought. You're putting thought into it. And think about what, that, what happens with that, right? When you're putting thought into it, you are allowing the Lord time to communicate to your soul so that he is helping you to decide how and what you are to give. Then we have the approaches to avoid. Not grudgingly, nor under compulsion. Grudgingly is like, like feeling bad, like you lost something, right? You gave and like, like the, the uh, Macedonians gave sacrificially, what if they'd given sacrificially and after that, gosh, man, I'll have anything. You know, they're sore about what they gave. No, you don't want to give grudgingly and you don't want to give on a compulsion. Compulsion has to do with external motivation, like purpose in your heart, but compulsion has to do with having other people Work your conscience so that you end up giving out of compulsion. It's not what you want to give, but you end up giving that because maybe you feel guilty, maybe you, your conscience just can't take it, and then you end up giving. Finally, the attitude to seek. God loves a cheerful giver. We got to always seek that, to be cheerful. You understand now how nearly impossible it is to be cheerful if you're being coerced into giving? And I've heard people preach, listen, when you give your tithing, you better make yourself cheerful <laughs> and bring it cheerfully, right? And of course, how do you do that? You put on a facade. You see how false teachers just ruin everything, right? Now you're walking after law. You're being pressed. You, you, no, the Lord wants you to be cheerful and there are ways to get there, and getting there is certainly not um, by a rule. But look at what he says. God loves a cheerful giver. Cheerful comes from the word from which we get hilarious. A cheerful, you know, I wanted to do a skit, right? So I thought, I got my money in the pocket, so I'll go up, start the sermon, and then I'll just leap through the hallway and drop my money in the box and leap back. And all of you watching me do this, but uh, that wouldn't have worked, right? That, that, that would have been funny for you, but not necessarily for me. But, 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 but the cheerful giver is one. Think about a time when you're most cheerful, right? You know, like for me, when Tave cooks uh, turkey, smoked turkey, 
I could smell it cooking and I get cheerful, right? I know what's going to happen in a little bit. But, but think about the moments that make you cheerful, and that's the, the, the disposition you want to have when you give. But look at what it says. God loves a cheerful giver. Loves. Now, whenever the scripture says God loves on top of what he already loves, and I don't understand how that works, but that's a unique love, right? It's a, like, for instance, I can give you examples, but I don't fully understand it. Remember how John was described in the Gospels? He was described as the one whom Jesus loved. Well, Jesus loved all the apostles, but John has this unique love. And here, for those who give in this way, God has this unique love. That's what he says. God loves a cheerful giver. Think about it this way. Even if I'm sinning, God still loves me, right? Even if I'm not even giving, he still loves me. Even if I'm not even cheerful when he, he still loves me because his love is based on the death of Christ, not anything I do. That can't be uh, adjusted, if you will. But, and no, I wouldn't want to do that, by the way. None of that stuff that I just said, because I want to do it the right way. But you can understand how in your giving now, there is a special attention. There's a special love. There's a unique about this love that God has for a cheerful giver. I think that's just awesome. Now, here's a recipe for free will giving. Believe one axiom, sowing and reaping. Sow bountifully, and you will reap bountifully. Take two actions. You got to give, and then purpose what you're going to give. Avoid two approaches giving grudgingly, and then giving under compulsion. And then you will give cheerfully. You'll have the right disposition. You'll have the right attitude. Now, if that's not motivating enough, here's what I want to end on. I don't have time to go through these verses. I think we've gone long enough, right? But I want to end by reading these verses. And these verses, here's what they're going to show you. God is always going to increase your ability to give as you give. And God is always going to be glorified when people give that way. So I'm going to read uh, verses 8 through 15 in chapter 9, finishing it out. Here we go. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness abides forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sore and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, right? He's going to make sure you're able to give and be liberal about your giving, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but it also is also overflowing through many thanksgiving to God. Notice how many times thanksgiving to God. Because of the proof given by the ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience, your confession of the gospel of Christ, and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. While they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. God is blessed. So I want to end on this note. The example of the harvest suggests that the farmer has the freedom to plant as much or as little as he chooses. We should give generously, freely, and deliberately. We should not give feeling that we hate to part with what we're giving. We should not give because we feel 
there is no alternative or because we think others will look down on us if we fail to give. We should not give impulsively or thoughtlessly, but with inward resolve, we should give cheerfully, hilariously, in the sense of very joyfully, but not in the sense of thoughtlessly. Cheerful givers always receive God's loving approval. There are those of us who have been tithing. And you've heard two messages on giving. And it's not exhaustive. There's much more that can be said. The challenge that you're going to have is not moving from one extreme to the next. The challenge that you're going to have is, I was tithing, I don't have to tithe anymore. So I'm not going to give. Or whatever you choose to, whatever you do, let it be guided by the Holy Spirit. Also, you're going to have, all of us really, we're going to have to constantly learn to hear the voice of God. Whenever you've been uh, accustomed to doing something legalistically, your conscience is captive to that. So now the Holy Spirit has to retrain the conscience so we listen to him. That's everything. Like Scott was teaching in Sunday school, walk by the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. All of life as a Christian is dependent on us walking by the Spirit. False teachers ruin that because they get you so captive in your conscience to a law that if you don't do this, God is going to do that. Now the retraining has to take place. So my advice to each of us is take caution Trust God and let the Lord guide your giving. And then you'll be cheerful and he will be pleased and you will be one who is an object of that special love that God has because he loves a cheerful giver. Finally, let me leave you with this quote by John Bunyan. And this is finally. (laughs) This is really good. A man there was... Though some did count him mad, the more he cast away, the more he had. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church.